Welcome to the JMD podcast and our first podcast of 2024. From our humble beginnings in 2020, the podcast has gone from strength to strength. Alongside the long-form interview-style podcast, we have the shortcasts, containing brief monologues on reports articles. And there are the new metabolic mysteries that look to describe cases in the order they unraveled, challenging our audience to make the diagnosis as they listen. Why not add the JMD podcast to your morning commute just by hitting subscribe, but not before listening to this latest episode on genomic newborn screening. Hello there. So today we have another podcast that revisits the wonderful SSIM meeting in Freiburg in 2022. And it's all a bit meta, recording the podcast of the paper of the panel. But this is such a hot topic that I couldn't let it slip by. I couldn't get all the panel guests, but I'm very grateful to be joined by Dr. David Bick, the principal clinician of the Newborn Genomes Programme at Genomics England, Henrietta Hopkins from the social research group Hopkins Van Mill, and Dr. Jim Bonham, current president of the International Society of Neonatal Screening. David, Henrietta and Jim, thank you for joining me. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you. So newborn screening essentially began in the 1960s. And even today, we're still using those same cards that Robert Guthrie first pioneered. The question put to the panel in Freiburg was, are we entering a new era? Before we try to answer that, perhaps we could please just look back on what is arguably one of the most successful public health interventions of all time. Jim, it's perhaps a bit much to ask you to cover 60 years in as many seconds, but could you do your best? What's the screening story so far? Yes, thanks for that, James. Newborn screening is one of those issues that people become very passionate about, introducing newborn screening in the first place and then introducing new conditions. We celebrate 60 years of newborn screening in 2023. And of course, it all began, as you say, James, with Bob Guthrie devising a test for PKU. And of course, it wasn't just the test that was important. He also gave us what we can now often call the Guthrie card, the dried blood spot card. And that enabled us to look not just at PKU, but at many other conditions as well. And Bob actually became so impassioned about this that he sold up in the US. He bought two VW microbuses and he traveled first off with his family to New Zealand and then came back across to Europe, landed his two microbuses at Liverpool docks and traveled down through Europe, advocating in favor of this early asymptomatic detection, particularly for PKU, but not just for PKU. And he was very successful at doing that. And so in the 1970s, we added new conditions, principally PKU, throughout Europe. And since then, I'm pleased to say we've we've screened around about 750 million babies for that condition. We've identified approximately 60,000 babies with PKU and radically changed their lives. And to put it into context, that's a football stadium full of people that can enjoy a relatively normal life because of that intervention. So it has huge potential. And of course, it didn't end there. It continued to develop and additional disorders were added one by one. Conditions such as congenital hypothyroidism, sickle cell disease, cystic fibrosis, uh, congenital adrenal hyperplasia. But in all of those situations, it was one disorder and one test. And every time you wanted to add a new disorder, you had to devise a new test. And that went on for 30 years, a generation, if you like, between 1963 and the mid-1990s. And then along came David Millington and Don Chase, and they gave us a new disruptive technology, MSMS, tandem mass spectrometry. And that allowed us to inject a single sample into this tandem mass spectrometer. 
and not just identify one condition, but potentially identify up to 60 inherited metabolic disorders. And of course, that forced people to choose and people chose differently. So in the States at the minute, they're screening for 35 core conditions and 26 uh, secondary conditions, giving them just over 60 conditions in total. In parts of Europe, they're screening for as few as two. And in some parts of Europe, they're screening for as many as 48. That's in Italy currently. So a lot of potential. And of course, now we're beginning, and this is what this is about, 30 years on, another generation on, and here comes along another disruptive technology and another chance or challenge to choose how will we use it. All right, so I suppose back then, if podcasts had been around, Guthrie might have used a podcast, but I think I'd rather go on a road trip in a V-dub, to be honest. Uh, just before we move on to, to the new project, you mentioned this expansion over time. And I certainly recall when we went from five conditions to nine, tripling the number of IMDs we were looking for on the newborn blood spot screen. It was a big deal at the time. What thought goes into making those additions and, and how do we know we get it right? Yeah, I think that's a good question. It was actually 2015 that we made that, that policy change, in the UK at least. The reason that people have chosen differently in different places is firstly that they take different factors into consideration. So I think in the UK in particular, we would try and have a balanced view between the harms and benefits. And of course, that's so difficult because they're different, almost in different currencies. You know, the devastating effect of a late diagnosis for one child has to be compared with the modest but nevertheless very real effects of uncertainty generated for some families and false positives for others. And it's difficult to make that equation and make it sensibly. But of course, it also depends upon the people making the choice. So in administrations where the clinicians who see the damaged patients are instrumental in making those choices about what is screened, such as the American College of Medical Genetics, then there is a real pressure to screen perhaps where you can. When those decisions are made by public health doctors and others who are very much aware of the risks and responsibilities of introducing whole population screening programs, then they tend to be a little bit more conservative. And that's what we've seen. We're interested in screening for a specific condition and each time we introduce a new condition, then it's got to satisfy the list of Wilson and Eugner criteria associated with that condition. Of course, that conservative approach really dictates whether or not you restrict your choice making to consideration of published or at least serious grey literature rather than taking the merely opinion based decision making. And that's how we've arrived at a different place. So that is kind of where we are. It brings us up to speed. And now we're looking to the future. And the UK is one of a number of countries looking at the introduction of genomic screening. In fact, in, in our case, we've at least got a research project almost ready to go. David, what is the generation study all about? Right. So the generation study is really to ask the following question, and I'm going to go back in history a little bit. Sally Davies, who is the chief medical officer for England in 2019, put together a panel to ask the question, could we use whole genome sequencing as an adjunct to the current newborn screening? Because we know it for a variety of reasons, it will always need to be an adjunct. That's a very important point. And so that panel said it would be appropriate to have a research study 
to ask the question how we might use this. At this point, there was a large public engagement. And following that public engagement, the NHS elected to go ahead and create this program, which we now call the Generation Study. And the study has three real parts to it. The first question is, can we use whole genome sequencing of a newborn where you sequence all of the genes? And can we look at a set of those genes in those children and identify treatable genetic conditions where we can intervene in the first few years of life and make a significant difference. So that's the main purpose of the generation study. There are two other parts. One is how can we use this information in a research environment to improve the number of conditions we seek, but also to find new conditions and most importantly, to find new treatments for many, many rare conditions which currently don't have a treatment. And then the third part, which is a bit more speculative, is how might a child's genome be useful across that child's lifespan? And just before we come to Henrietta, is this something that you consider would be done just in the blood spot or is it going to be more complicated than that? Right. So that's a very good question. One of the efforts we've already undertaken is to establish what will be our source of DNA? Because when you do a whole genome, what you're doing is you're sequencing the DNA, all of that child's genes. And so the blood spot card can be used as a source of that DNA. We compared blood spot card to umbilical cord blood. As your listeners will know, the umbilical cord, part of the placenta, is simply discarded after birth. So it's very convenient at the time of birth to take a blood sample from the umbilical cord and you can get a larger sample and a sample where DNA extraction can be performed very easily. So that was a second source. And a third source that was considered was a simple cheek swab. And looking at those three potential sources, we've elected to use the cord blood for a variety of reasons not the least of which is that the midwives in the UK and around the world are very used to taking cord blood at birth. For example, if they're going to look for RH disease, which is typically done when you know that the mom is RH negative. So it was a convenient sample source, which we trialed and we found working again with the midwives that they were quite comfortable taking that sample. And so that'll be the sample type that we plan to use in this study. Having been what they affectionately called the peed on the postnatal ward, I know that sometimes when those samples are missed, it's it's us that are called upon to bleed the baby, which will, I'm sure, excite many a postnatal ward doctor. But that's an important point that you've brought up, which is that if the cord blood can't be obtained, which we know will happen in a percentage of cases, we are going to use a blood spot card on day zero of life. One of the important points, and I know that Jim will probably get back to this as well, we're being very careful in this program to be sure that we don't interfere with an incredibly successful standard newborn screening program where samples are taken at day five. So that's one of the areas that we've paid particular attention to with respect to this program. Oh, there's a group of paediatricians who are collectively breathing a sigh of relief there. Um, so this wealth of information is both exciting, but I guess a little bit scary. And I'd like to bring in Henrietta, who's been waiting very patiently. I believe your company was asked to explore public attitudes towards a change in, in approach. Are we ready for this? 
Yeah, that's a really interesting question, James. I think I'll answer that by saying perhaps what we did a little bit, because I think it's important, David mentions this public engagement process and perhaps explaining how we did that might help unpick, are we ready for this? So Hopkins Van Mill was commissioned by Genomics England and the UK National Screening Committee to undertake a best practice public dialogue. And that was therefore funded by a program called ScienceWise, which is a sort of gold standard of dialogue. And I think that's important because what public dialogue does is take a group of people over time and enable them to work with evidence, work with scientists, researchers to unpick a subject. What we did was involve a group of public from around the country. So we had 84 people broadly reflective of the UK population. And then a group of people who have, who might have specific perspectives on using whole genome sequencing in newborn screening. And so they were people and families with genetic conditions, a group of new and expectant parents, a group of people from black, Asian and minority ethnic backgrounds, and a group of young adults who potentially are the group most likely to be affected by the program in the future. And we worked with them over several months with questions in our minds, such as what can whole genome sequencing do and what it can't do? Because when we were doing this study in 2020 and 2021, it was a time of unprecedented knowledge, really, in genomics, because we were in the middle of the COVID pandemic. So people were hearing a lot about genomic testing and what it was, but we wanted to be clear what it could do and it couldn't do in this case. And then exploring over several workshops, the potential novel or alternative uses as a technology for newborn screening, perhaps going beyond traditional screening and looking at lifetime implications. And then having a final culminating workshop. So I just want to stress that public dialogue is a long form process of engagement where people are on a level playing field with the evidence, with the science to explore and unpick the issues. But in terms of are we ready for this? Participants in the dialogue were after that process saying we are really broadly supportive of the potential use for whole genome sequencing for newborn screening but only if proper consideration is given to designing the study. And they were very, very supportive of a research study which would explore this in microcosm before potential rollout. They were very interested in keeping a public dialogue going around this topic, particularly to, given the complexities of what whole genome sequencing in newborn screening could do, to create a generation of people who are aware of it and understand it so that they're not terrified when someone comes at their baby with a request for blood and and there's a reason for doing it. They were also really keen that there was a proper integrated support network around the program. So genetic counselling in place, mental health assistance should it be needed, particularly if the number of conditions to be screened for would be extended. And also just making sure that People are not excluded from this process, that it doesn't become a postcode lottery or a, something that excludes people from certain backgrounds because we don't have enough information on genetic makeup of people from diversity of backgrounds. So the findings were complicated and rich and nuanced, and it was one of the longest reports we ever wrote. But uh, that's because our participants were so engaged in the process and they were so keen to unpick every element of it. I remember one of our young people was very concerned about the climate impacts of having supercomputers analyzing this data. So, I mean, it was a very nuanced, long-form discussion. But the broad support was there for doing this if the conditions are right and if the right support and frameworks are in place for doing it well. 
And I do think that what Henrietta did really did set the tone for the entire program. You know, I refer to her work every time I give a talk about how the public was engaged and what the public basically said. So I, I do think that the work she did is really central to the whole program. We learned a lot from that process. And I really felt very strongly that we heard clearly because it was a well-designed and well-executed process for engaging with the public. Because of that, we really did get a very strong direction. That's great to hear, David. Thank you. I mean, just quickly, what are they What are they most afraid of? What is the, the biggest fear? Are people worried about security and ownership of data? That's a very important concern. They were very concerned that genomic data is a part of me. It's part of who I am. So teach it with extreme care and caution. And they were very interested in the kind of trusted frameworks for accessing data and who would access it and how it would be secure. They were also very concerned about the, the lifetime implications of whole genome sequencing if a baby is screened. Who would be doing the analysis? Would a full analysis of, of someone's data be done at that point? Or would there be certain points when it'd be more meaningful to dip back into the data? So there are lots of concerns about how the data would be used, who would use it, and its security. They were also concerned about really wider implications that those of us who've looked at public reactions to data use in the NHS more broadly have heard before, but that these data should not be used by insurance companies or marketing companies. You shouldn't sometimes find that you've got a notification on your on your browser that this particular drug will really help your condition and you should hire to your pharmacy to get it. They were also concerned that Genomics England and the UK National Screening Committee had taken great care to set up a structure to work with them to see what that structure should be. And they were very concerned that actually changes in policy, changes in government could overturn all this good work and make it work inappropriately or in a way that they were concerned would have an impact on ethics. They were also concerned that the programme could deliver a seismic shift in current healthcare systems. They felt they could shift the NHS towards a more preventive focus. And they thought that was absolutely fabulous, but they were really concerned that the NHS as it exists isn't structured well enough to deliver that or embrace that or work within the support. And I suppose that they were really fascinated by the pace of scientific change and that whole genome sequencing was being considered as part of this. So their concerns often shifted to excitement and fascination. And there was a real excitement about using population level whole genome sequencing data for the NHS to plan effectively, to manage resources well and understand trends. So I think a lot of concerns often turn to excitement, fascination. Isn't it amazing that science can deliver this? So uh, I think I would turn that back on itself. It's interesting that some people are amazed by the speed of technological advancement, whilst at the same time, when you speak to some families, they feel that progress is glacial because they're waiting for treatments for their child and recognise there's a five-year or 10-year development pipeline. And similarly, hoping for more public health input. And the reality is we know a number of interventions that would improve public health, but there isn't necessarily a uh, enthusiasm to engage around them, especially for things beyond simple genetic disease, but more lifestyle-related disease. But let's try and keep on focus on, on 
on the metabolic side of things. And I wanted to sort of highlight that this is obviously a jump, David, from nine conditions to 200. It's bigger than that small step back in 2015. And that felt like a huge step at the time. This expansion isn't just about technological change. This is something that Jim alluded to. It's a difference about how people think about what we should screen for. Henrietta's talked about the excitement of the potential here, but are we changing the way we think about screening? So that's a really good question. I think that we have quite honestly tried to take what we think is a reasonably conservative approach to this problem. And I'll expand on that. One of the takeaways we got from the public engagement was that we understood that the public was interested in conditions that were treatable, not so much conditions that were untreatable. And it turns out that there's quite a long list of untreatable genetic conditions. So that immediately put us into a situation saying, all right, we're going to focus on treatable conditions. The other piece that we heard was that we really needed to choose conditions where the treatment needs to be initiated in the first few years of life. And so those were two very, very important takeaways from that public engagement. And I think sort of suffuse the entire program every time we think about this. We've had a marvelous engagement and help from the National Screening Committee. What we're doing, we could not do without Jim and his colleagues. You just have to understand that. And the other group that we're working really closely with is the NHS, because if this is going to be a long-term process and project, well, not even project, but just to be including, you know, screening 600,000 newborns per year forever. (laughs) If we're going to do this, we really need to engage with the NHS right from day one. And so literally from the beginning of the project, there has been a very close collaboration with the NHS because that, along with those three goals that I had alluded to before, one of the most important parts of this project is how would this look inside the NHS? So we've actually made the entire program to be integrated into the NHS literally from day one so that we can not only understand what the parents thought about what we're doing, you know, our our evaluation process, what the clinicians who speak to the patients think, but what is this effect on the NHS as a system as a whole? Because This is one of the, you know, really great stories, I think, of the UK is this concept of an NHS. I come from the United States, as my accent will clearly demonstrate. And in the United States, every state is its own country with respect to newborn screening. And with respect to the health system in the U.S., we have a multitude of insurance companies. And so in in order to make the newborn screening program successful, a nationwide program really needs to be part of this process literally from day one. And so that's really sort of how we've started to think about narrowing this into not only what the public wants, but what the physicians think is appropriate and what the NHS would be able to do long term. Um, what David had just said is exactly what our participants expected. They wanted really very much those three elements to be clearly in place. And I think if any of those were to listen to this podcast, they would be highly reassured by what David is saying. 
And that's good to hear. And it's nice that what's being done marries up with what people want. All of this now comes on the back of a global pandemic. It's a pandemic that has in some areas seems to have led to a, a grumbling distrust of the health service. And some of this is linked around scepticism about genetics, notably perhaps around mRNA technology. And for some people, you can't separate genomics, DNA and RNA. People will feel those are closely linked. I know there's a lot of enthusiasm in many quarters for this project, but is there a risk that some of this distrust could taint attitudes towards newborn screening, which in itself is a really successful program? Yeah, I think that there is. I mean, as Henrietta said of the public, I think most of us as professionals would share the view that we're excited and fascinated by the potential of genomics but also just a little bit worried about its potential impact. I think it's fair to say that newborn screening has been hugely successful. It's, it's been described by many as the biggest public health advance of the 20th century. And obviously that's music to my ears as someone involved in newborn screening, but actually it came from a public health source. That, that was a quotation from CDC. And more recently I was at the conference with a colleague from her said that's the American public health body. And he introduced the meeting by describing newborn screening as the poster boy of public health. And the reason he said that is because almost universally where it's offered, the uptake is extremely high. The declines that we get in the UK and Europe and indeed right around the world are something like one in a thousand. That gives us a 99.9% uptake. And if you contrast that with vaccine wariness in some sectors of the population, it's very different. So typically we might get uptakes of around about 80% of vaccine programs that are working well. And that would have a huge potential impact. Even a small drop in the uptake of newborn screening would make a massive difference, particularly for the well-established and more common conditions that are currently screened. So just as a quick calculation, for instance, if we had a 10% drop in uptake because of, let's say, concern on social media about the storage of DNA samples, if that went down from 99.9% to 90%, that would, in Europe alone, lead us to miss 280 cases every year of congenital hypothyroidism, 140 cases every year of cystic fibrosis, 35 of PKU. And of course, you could go on and on for all the other conditions that we screen for. So I think that there's real anxiety that some people, not many, not the majority, but some people will be wary and wary enough to say, well, actually, I'm not sure about having my baby tested if this means storage of DNA, because I'm just not pro-government. I don't want the government interfering in the lives of my family. And I would be surprised if that was not the case. I think the other concern is perhaps a little bit more pragmatic and policy driven, but the genomic treatments very often associated with genomic testing are very extensive. And we know, for instance, that people say rare is common. And what they mean by that is even though there are rare disorders, there are a lot of them. And we know that there are more than 5,000 rare conditions. NIH would put that number at about 7,000. But if we were to take the lower estimate of 5,000 and say 80% of those are genetic, if we devised genomic therapies for even 10% of those linked to screening, that would give us 400 conditions. And genomic treatments, typically expensive, but if we take a more conservative end 
and say one million pounds per condition if you want, and a prevalence of one in 50,000 as an average. That's a spend of almost six billion pounds a year in the UK and 35 billion euro a year in Europe. And at the minute, I'm not completely convinced that our governments are committed to that level of spend. So it may mean taking money from some areas of healthcare, mental health for young people, for instance, and then spending it in areas that are more fascinating, more interesting, and to some extent, more revolutionary, and of course, hugely beneficial for those children. But I think if we take those two things together, both the cost and public anxiety, this really is a disruptive technology. Interesting, fascinating, huge potential, but fraught with huge risk as well. I mean, cost of treatment is something that comes up again and again in the podcast. You could argue that the companies have rather cynically set the cost to be net neutral to the health service because they feel the money saved elsewhere in that child's lifetime care is is being paid for, you know, in, in the cost of the treatment and whether that's true and whether that's the right way to price these drugs is, again, another argument. David, how do we ensure that people feel safe around the use of their data and the storage of their data? Right. So I think Jim is right on many points and that we really do have to take a very careful and measured approach to how we would use this new technology. So one of the things that we've done at Genomics England is we take data security and data privacy incredibly seriously. There was the 100,000 Genomes Project, which was in 2013, where 100,000 individuals with rare disease and cancer were sequenced. And so we have a great deal of experience in maintaining the integrity and the safety and security of that data. We take that charge very seriously. I think the economic question is an extremely important one. Among those two or 300 conditions, the vast majority are medications which are very inexpensive. So for example, there are certain conditions where the treatment is you give the child extra sodium and potassium. That's the treatment, oral sodium and potassium. So there's lots and lots of conditions where the cost is negligible. That's not to take away from the problem of million dollar drugs. I don't want to say that it obviates the problem, but I'm saying that there are many, many conditions where the treatment is well-established and inexpensive. As part of this program, a significant effort will go into examining exactly what happens with those children who are screen positive. And so we estimate of the 100,000 children that we plan to screen using whole genome sequencing in the next two years, we will look at approximately 500 genes. And as you point out, about 250 or so conditions. And the reason that those two don't match up is because some conditions are caused by more than one gene. So we expect to see perhaps a thousand positives with perhaps 500 false positives. And when we think about the actual screening process, we want to make sure that we can do a few things. The first being that we choose conditions where there is a treatment and that it is of an appropriate age where treatment would have to be undertaken. We've chosen genes where we know that they're highly penetrant. That means if you have mistakes in that gene, 
you're going to have a very, very high probability of having the condition. And then we've also gone to the step saying, if we have someone who's screen positive, we'll have a non-DNA test so we can give a parent a yes-no answer after two or three months at most. And then for those conditions where we've chosen a gene, we know that we have a confirmatory test, we're going deeper than that. We're choosing genetic changes, what are called variants, in those genes that have been established to cause disease, so-called pathogenic and likely pathogenic variants. Because remember, these children don't have symptoms. Some of them will, but most of them won't have symptoms by the time we get a, a sequencing result. And so we have to be very careful for the parent's sake that we choose conditions, choose variants, and choose a process whereby we can keep the number of false positives very low and make sure that we have a way of saying to the parents, we can give you a yes, no answer to your screen very quickly. And also importantly, is the connection with the specialists and making sure that we have established pathways and established clinicians for each of the conditions so that we have a clear road for us to sequence the genome, find the variants, pass the variants on to specialists who are specialized in actually analyzing the genomic data, then passing that report to a specialist who's already been prepared to receive those reports and has thought through exactly what they're going to say to parents when they call them up. So I think from that perspective, we've tried very hard to take into account what the public is concerned about, but also the things that Jim brought up in terms of cost and the issues of managing the data safely and securely. You've mentioned that this approach should ensure that we're only delivering true positives to parents. Something that Henrietta mentioned was the concern about equality, not leaving anyone behind. Is there a danger if you are only choosing well-established pathogenic variants that this may fail to reflect a diverse population given some of the homogeneity of established genomic data sets. I think it's right, Henrietta, people were worried about whether this would adequately reflect them and their population. I think that's something that came from your work, isn't it? Absolutely. They were worried about that. They were also very specifically worried about, given this engagement was done in the time of COVID, that minoritized groups would somehow feel this was not for them, or it might increase concern that already was growing during COVID from minoritized groups who felt they couldn't trust mainstream medicine. And there was concerns in particular groups about the vaccination program, for example. So there was a real problem for some in the group who just felt that this would perpetuate inequalities in society. I mean, I'm looking at something in the report at the moment, talking about historic ethnic minority mistreatment in the development of medical treatments. And they were very concerned to ensure that the even the, the generation study, the, the pilot study, as it was being called then, should really make sure it represents the UK population. And that would really help in time to build trust, which is the point Jim was making. It's really important that there's a trusted foundation for this work. Otherwise, it really could undermine a very successful screening program. And they were very keen on that. There's someone here who said, we would first have to see if there was a difference in uptake between different ethnicities and make sure that any people who had concerns, especially if they were from minoritized groups, that they had someone to talk about it 
But if we get whole genome sequencing data from newborns across a range of ethnicities, it could help fill in some of the data gaps that we have. And that was just one quotation of many you know, people really, really concerned about that. I suppose that will help for the future, but for the patients being screened in the first instance, David, how do we ensure that those variants identified fully reflect the population we're serving? So, you know, I think this is another piece of the public engagement that we've really taken to heart. There are a few levels of process that we've undertaken for this. One important thing that everyone should hear very clearly is that our ethics engagement is with an external ethics advisory panel, which we take very seriously. So that would be an external group looking over our shoulder all the time. It's not just the situation where we got our rec approval and moved on. That's not at all the way this program runs. We have ethics embedded in every step of this program. The second is when we speak to families, we plan to reach out to moms and dads during pregnancy. We'd like to have the first interaction be in the second trimester of pregnancy with the hope that we would have folks signing up by perhaps 36 weeks. But we would like to engage with folks through their midwife between 24 and 36 weeks of pregnancy so that families can, number one, have an opportunity to think about this before they sign up. But number two, for us to focus on this issue of making sure that we've approached the minority communities. So that's one aspect of this. The other aspect is where are we going to do this? So we expect that in the beginning of the program, we will just have a few trusts getting started. We have five that we're working with closely to get the program underway by the end of December, probably into January, where we would actually start recruiting patients. And when we chose those trusts, we chose trusts where there was a large delivery service, but most importantly, an ethnically diverse population at those trusts so that we knew that those midwives would be approaching right from the beginning of the program, a very diverse population and making sure that we include the minority population. Also, there is specific outreach that we wish to do with these minority populations, and that's part of the program as well. And there is a diversity program within Genomics England, specifically setting out to obtain sequence from minority populations so that we can understand what are the genetic changes, the variants that are across those populations so that we can understand, all right, James, if I sequence your genome, I'm going to find hmm, perhaps 5 million DNA changes, which are benign. But scattered in there, there's going to be some changes which actually cause problems. But I really need to have these genomes from different ethnic backgrounds so that I can understand how to sort of separate the changes that aren't going to hurt you from ones that are potentially important. So that's another way that the program is establishing how we're going to actually look at the sequence data. And so those are all the different methods. I will say that one of the concerns that we continue to have is that we don't know all of the DNA changes that cause disease 
in the minority populations as well as we understand them in, for example, a Caucasian population. And so that's another aspect of this research program where we really want to focus our energy and focus our efforts. So we've actually been speaking to the genomic laboratory hubs. These are the genomics centers around England that are actually carrying out sequencing on a day-to-day -day basis for a long list of genetic conditions and engaging with them to identify variants that are perhaps England specific or specific to minority populations and bring those into the program. So we take this charge very seriously. You've said you won't be reporting variants of uncertain significance. If you've got a child who subsequently develops a clinical phenotype, can the teams come back to your data? Right. So this is an important point. We expect that, and we tell parents this very clearly right from the get-go. We say to parents, look, we'd like to look for a couple of hundred conditions which are treatable, but you must know that even though we're looking for these conditions, because this is a screening test, we know that we're going to miss some of the conditions that we're looking for. And we make that very clear to families. So let's say we do a screen and that screen is negative, but then after two or three months, that child develops a medical condition. And now the clinician says to themselves, oh, you know, this could be such and such genetic condition. What we're saying to those clinicians is that you should carry out the normal testing that you would to look for that condition. We would be very interested in hearing back about anything that you find. But one of the key principles of our program, it is it's a research program and we must not interfere with the normal care of children. And so we wouldn't want anything we're doing to interfere with that care. Perfect. It's certainly useful for me to know how we're going to use this in practice. And I guess you're starting to give us an indication of when we might see our first results if you're looking to begin recruitment in December and January. I suppose I'm mindful of the time, so I want to start wrapping up. I mean, just this week, I saw an opinion piece expressing the concerns that we're investing heavily in genomics and perhaps we risk neglecting a broader metabolomic approach that might be more clinically relevant, perhaps at least in the field of inherited metabolic disease, where you might see a, a metabolomic change more consistent with the clinical phenotype. When the dust settles on all of this, what do you think screening will look like? I think, James, that you've hit upon something which is really important, and that's setting these genomic investigations alongside metabolite and increasingly metabolomic approaches to, to diagnosis. And one of the useful things that David mentioned is that this genomic project effectively breaks the link between conditions and forms of those conditions, which we know are going to be serious because in current newborn screening using metabolite-based approaches, we attempt to identify all babies that could possibly have the condition. So we're not particularly being selective. And of course, the penalty that we pay for that is we identify severe forms that we can treat and, and treat effectively. But we also identify milder variants that might not require immediate treatment. Um, so we've been screening for IVA using metabolites. We've looked back at the cases that we've identified. We've identified 24 what we call true screen positives. So we identified many more screen positives. 60 of those were false positives, but 24 were true positives. Of those 24, seven required uh, normal dietary intervention together with carnitine and glycine, the kind of standard way that you would approach that. 
and they've all shown signs and symptoms of disease. They've not been asymptomatic. 17 have not required that input and have remained asymptomatic and been managed only on an emergency regimen advice. I think two of them had my protein restriction. All of those 17, the milder cases, had isovaloral carnitine of less than seven, you know, take a point something. Whereas the seven cases that were more severe all had isovaloral carnitine of greater than seven. So if we'd been using a kind of genomics philosophy, we'd say, well, actually, we're only interested in patients whose isovaloral carnitine is greater than seven. And, and then we'd only be identifying those cases who needed immediate childhood intervention. But we're not, because we don't want to miss cases of, of IVA. And, and the genomic stuff challenges that, and I think challenges that usefully, because I think we can look differently at metabolomics. You know, we could say, well, let's not try and, if you can get your mind around this, let's not try and identify every child with IVA and every child with MSUD and every child with MMA. Let's use metabolites in the way that you're using genomics, set our cutoffs much higher, use ratios of metabolites, and target those children with severe and treatable disease and massively expand the number of conditions that we use for MSMS. So go to 60 conditions, but use it much more selectively, accepting the fact that there will be people with milder forms of disease that unfortunately may progress, but wouldn't necessarily benefit from being identified. Because that's how you're going to use the genomics. You're not really interested in identifying all cases of a particular condition. You're interested in using a technology to benefit children. Jim brings up what I think is an incredibly important point, and it's the following. There is this notion of sensitivity and specificity. We know that with genomics, we can get, and we believe we're going to get, very high specificity. But for many of the conditions, our sensitivity will be very low because we don't know all the variants that cause that disease. If you take a condition like SMA, we're going to find essentially all the cases because the molecular basis is deletion or gene conversion, and they all give you deletions or gene conversion events, basically. And for a condition like cystic fibrosis, taking a genomic approach will be great for one population, but not necessarily for all populations. And then you take a condition like some rare form of severe combined immune deficiency or some other immune disorder, we might only have 30 or 50 variants that have ever been discovered, and there might be 5,000 out there lurking, right? So our sensitivity will be affected for quite a number of the conditions. But globally, the question is, and this is sort of, again, what Jim was alluding to globally, you know, if you have 200 conditions and you find one of each of those cases, well, the parents will be happy, right? Because you saved their child's life. But you run into this issue of having enough cases for any one condition to make sense of that from a screening committee point of view. And so those are the kind of challenges that this brings up. And it'll be important to federate our data with other groups around the world so that we can accumulate in some of these rarer conditions enough cases that we can provide data to show that 
for that condition, it makes sense to have that as part of screening. So these are all of the challenges, but all of the really the opportunities that this program and programs like it around the world provide. So I think we can marry some of the metabolomic learning to the genomics and hopefully in 10 years time, we'll be able to synthesize the two together. I would hope that it would be an opportunity, not necessarily optimistic this is going to happen, but there are groups around the world looking at untargeted metabolomics. And I would hope it's an opportunity to develop an untargeted metabolomic approach alongside genomics and possibly using artificial intelligence to bring those two together and inform that debate, both for our mainstream population, if you like, but also for the ethnic groups that we've been talking about. We have had a look at the CFTR2 database in terms of using extended next generation sequencing as part of the algorithm for screening for CF. And what that told us was, in fact, yes, you can use this, but you can't use it effectively in all ethnic groups. So we kind of know that. When we introduced the next generation sequencing, we could do it in two different ways. One of them was to limit it to combinations of pathogenic variants, or we could include one pathogenic variant alongside other changes. And one of them massively increased the number of the CF SPIDs, the CF screen positive inconclusive diagnosis from our current 25 to around about 80. Of course, the other would reduce it from the current 25 down to zero. So you could argue that you should do that more restricted approach and get rid of the CF SPID. But of course, you risk missing some children who would then move from CF SPID to being affected. So with the help of the HVM team, we asked the public and interestingly patients and doctors which approach we should adopt in reporting. And not surprisingly, they gave different answers. The public, a little bit in line with Henrietta's comments today, the public were much more conservative and said, well, actually, what parents don't want is uncertainty. So therefore, we would restrict that to pathogenic combinations. The doctors and the patient-parent group drawn from the CF Trust wanted to maximize sensitivity and didn't want any child to be left behind. So we now still haven't been able to decide. And so this is a very live debate about, you know, do you simply use the technology to deliver ben known benefit remove uncertainty and identify not only treatable, but patients that you know that you've got an intention to treat, or do you use the technology more widely not to miss potential cases of a, of a condition? I really think, Jim, you bring up another point that we talk about all the time, which is this notion that the experience of a family and a couple with medicine in general dictates their views. So if you speak to a young couple in their 20s, and we've done a lot of this, actually, we've spoken to dozens and dozens and dozens of couples, and we continue to do that all through our program because we need to get feedback on how about this website? How about this form? How about this information sheet? How about all of these things? We're constantly asking people in the public, but the experience of disease for a young couple, if they've never experienced a genetic condition, 
In fact, most young couples have never even heard of newborn screening and their experience with what they would want from the program because of their personal experience is very different than my patients who've had a rare genetic condition and what they would want from screening, which is they want their condition looked for, even if it's untreatable, because their personal experience, the personal horror of going from having a child who is apparently fine to something seriously and in some cases life-threatening makes them want to take care of other couples, other families who don't even know what kind of trouble could lurk because they don't know about it. And so those two kinds of parents really represent the central conundrum of screening. Well, I just, I just reflect on the last point that David just made. Um, you know, it's so difficult, isn't it, when you get several different perspectives. But the young adults group really were interested in this idea of how far you screen and when you screen and do you screen people before they conceive. It was so fascinating about reproductive choice, about um, family implications. But there are very important points in the report about what are the implications of this for family members. Um, so it's not just the parents and the newborn, it's the, the wider family who uh, potentially uh, have implications for them. And that's a very significant element of particularly what our young adults said. And I think it's in safe hands in Genomics England. I think these projects are going on right around the world. But Genomics England's approaching this in a very conservative way and trying to balance the risks and benefits of screening. So, so that's good. But we really do need to make the most of that data. We need to bring together metabolomics. We need to bring together genomics. And hopefully in 10 years' time, we'll be able to know where they can sit and what they can offer alongside one another. Whether it will happen depends upon whether there's a, a willingness to invest the same level of investment that's going into genomics, into metabolomics. And although metabolomics has got huge potential, I don't see the same excitement and fascination with investing in metabolomics, even though it probably has a similar amount to offer so I absolutely agree with Jim that metabolomics has huge potential and I see the two running together basically forever. And there are groups in Australia that are, are looking into this very carefully and there's actually groups in the United States. And at this point, I'm going to make a, a slight advertisement, but there is an international consortium on newborn sequencing. And so if folks are particularly interested in who around the world is involved in newborn screening using genomic sequencing, that would be a place that folks can go. Again, as Jim pointed out, I think marrying these technologies is critical. But one of the things I always try and come back to, and this comes back to my clinical training, I'm a clinician by, by trade, and I've actually run whole genome sequencing laboratories, but I think of myself as a clinician. And what I always think about is, what will moms and dads want? And for me, what they want is for us, the NHS, the clinicians, basically any physician in the world, they want us to help them have healthy children and for them, us to help them have their children live their best lives. And that's really what this program is about. Can we do that? And I think that the NHS, and the physicians all have that at their heart of what they're thinking about. And 
how they feel about this program. And I think that that's really why this program is funded, because that is at the heart of what we want and what we're trying to do. I think that's a sentiment we all share. We, we certainly want healthy children who are able to live their best lives. Henrietta, I don't know if you wanted to add to it. I mean, I appreciate you said you're reflecting the, the opinions of the group that you've surveyed. Well, I thought it might be nice if I ended with a few of their words rather than mine. So one of our group in Southern England said, don't run before you can walk. Keep any research study within a manageable limit to inform the future. Someone from the genetic conditions group said, don't mess this up. It's a great opportunity, but if you don't do it properly, it will fail at the pilot stage. Make sure you get a decent cross-section of people involved. And someone in our young adults group said, find a balance, and in brackets, somehow, uh, between consent, the stress of knowing, and the benefits of the research. And then I'll perhaps end with thank you for taking public views into consideration and doing this amazing piece of work. So I think there was a a real value placed on involving people meaningfully in discussions about the future of newborn screening. And I would, I think, make a plea for the public voice to be involved in these decisions and these discussions, because given the right conditions, the right evidence, a place to speak and balance uh, their views across the views of science and research, then I think it can be very powerful. Thank you. Well, I guess it's a message for you, David. Don't mess this up. We will do everything in our power to get this right. Oh, thank you all. I mean, I know this is a discussion that will run and run. If you're listening, you can find more details on the Generation Project on the Genomics England website, including a list of those over 200 conditions that have been selected for inclusion. And if you'd like to read more from David, Henrietta and Jim, as well as the other panel members from Freiburg, Tanya Cronier of H2R and Edith Skygross from Eurydice, please click the link in the podcast description or search our website for genomic newborn screening. And if you'd like to hear more content from the SSIM meeting, please check out our SSIM special episode. David, Henrietta and Jim, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today. James, thank you for having me. Thank you, James. That was good. And thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.